Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. And this week, I've been thinking a lot about escape. Who hasn't, right? Last week, I went into the woods with my family. It was for a single night in a rustic cabin beside a beautiful lake. But the best part? No cell service and no Wi-Fi. As we were driving the winding road that made up the final stretch of a three-hour journey, my wife received a push notification. Joe Biden had just chosen Kamala Harris as his running mate. And then, just as the responses to one of the most anticipated events of the presidential election began pouring in, the signal was lost. 24 hours of pure bliss followed. Escape. To be clear, I'm interested in Kamala Harris. You'll hear me talking about her in this week's episode. It's just the deluge of rushed opinions I dread. The race to score points. To meme. Obviously, I'm also kind of addicted to that rush. You don't have to drive into the woods to avoid social media. I could just not look at my phone. And yet, how can we look away? Every four years, we're told that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. And it's not usually true. But with a pandemic raging, our economy in shambles, and the future of our democracy hanging in the balance, it sure as hell feels like it is this time. And so we doom scroll for information, yes, but also for confirmation and ultimately confrontation. So our nerves are frayed, our defenses are up, our appreciation of nuance is obliterated. And I guess what concerns me most is just that it'll never end. Whatever the results of the November election, I don't expect our politics to stop. We'll just keep going back to that same battleground and I will, again, be headed for the woods. This week, I'm speaking with Henry Olson, a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a conservative think tank. We explore some of the nuances around the major narratives unfolding in this year's election, from the attacks on Harris to the concerns over the Postal Service, and what Trump's run is doing to the Republican Party. Then, later in the show, I'll bring David Croman on to talk about the surprise resignation of Seattle's police chief and the fallout that's followed. Before we get to the interviews, though, I have a couple programming notes here. So, we had to bump back my conversation with former South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers. That will be coming next week. And then, on September 3rd, I'll be talking to NBC News correspondent Jacob Sobroff, If you have questions for either of these guys that you would like me to ask, let me know at talks at crosscut.com. And one more note here. We had some technical difficulties this week, so the audio quality of the Henry Olson interview isn't quite up to our usual standards. Fortunately, the conversation is. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Henry Olson. Henry is a columnist for the Washington Post whose job it is to write about politics, populism, and conservative thought. He's a former political consultant and lawyer who's spent the last couple decades at some of Washington, D.C.'s most influential think tanks. Henry's writing has brought into focus the impact of a resurgent populism on both of our major political parties, rifts that are being laid bare during this election cycle. He often writes about Republican politics, but recently he's turned some attention to the Democratic Party, where he sees major, though not entirely new, shifts underway. In a recent column, he wrote that President Trump's unpopularity looks like it will give Democrats a resounding win this fall. That only delays, however, the coming confrontation between a left that wants systemic change and a center left that wants reform. If this summer is any indication, that clash will play out in our streets as well as our politics. Henry, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks for having me. So I chose that passage because I think it really is the culmination of uh, this shift toward populism right now, right? This is where the two parties are are kind of meeting in this election. Um, And, uh, you know, I want to talk about what's going on with the Democrats in a minute, but I want to start with the Republican side of this. And in particular, how Donald Trump is planning to thwart your expectation. 
We have a Republican National Convention coming up next week. As far as you understand, what's the message that we're going to hear from the party at that convention? How will they try to sway voters to reelect Donald Trump? I, I think one thing we should do at the outset is distinguish between the party and Trump. This is going to be a Trump convention. It is not going to be a party convention. For the first time in Republican history, there will not be a new platform. And as is the case with a personalized president, the uh, focus will be on him, him, him. So the question is, what will Trump say about himself? Uh, if past is any recent past is any indication, he will talk about the themes he wants to talk about collapsing borders, American identity, uh, and, uh, law and order. Uh, that is something that he thinks he can tie down Joe Biden on, in part because there is a faction of the Democratic left that does seem to want open borders, that is uh, tolerant of continued violence in uh, many American cities and is out of step with America's middle. Uh, Joe Biden has not allowed himself to date to be tied to that, but he's also avoided an open break with that faction. We can expect at minimum that Trump will try and force him to have to choose between a center that would like Biden to reject extremism and a left that will only be satisfied if Biden is at best tolerant of it. Hmm. So we see Trump campaigning, trying to position Biden as a tool of the socialist left. Um, is, but is there an opportunity for the Republican Party, maybe separate from Trump, to, to own the center here? And is that where the battle is taking place, even if the, you know, all of the fireworks are around you know, what Trump is saying? But is there a battle for the center taking place between a, a Republican Party separate from Trump and then this sort of Biden wing of the Democratic Party? And how is that playing out? I think there will be a battle for the center that takes place. Trump is trying to wage it, but I suspect waging it in a way that he won't win. Uh, but the Republican Party will engage in that battle. And the fact is, once Biden is governing, he owns the problems. It's one thing to say, I'll do better than Trump. And that is what the theme of the Democratic Convention is so far. Let's be unified to say we're not Trump. But once he's inaugurated, presuming that the Democrats have control of the Senate and the House, which if he wins, they should, then he owns it. And then he has to decide how to reassemble that coalition in a governing way. One mm -hmm. should expect the Republican Party, shorn of an unpopular president, to contest the center in a way that it currently cannot. And then the onus will be on Biden to see whether or not he can unite the center left, the center and the far left in a workable coalition. Okay, well, so let's talk about that divide in the Democratic Party. The, the column I quoted at the intro was spurred by the Seattle City Council's vote to cut funding for the police department, right? And, and in it, you compare the moment we're in right now to the unrest of the 60s and uh, that you credit with giving us the Nixon presidency, Dirty Harry, and the, the crime bill of 1992. Um, in other words, a major political and cultural shift. And so when you when you make this comparison to the to the 60s and what followed, are you imagining our current moment as being an inflection point where we are going to see as drastic a shift uh, in the politics and culture of this nation as we did back in 1968? I'm saying it could be. You know, the thing to remember about 1968 is it follows on four years that start in 1964. This year could be like 64 or 65, the beginning of a four-year period of a combination of rapid change uh, by a center left that's trying to institute reform and a far left that wants much, much more. And the far left was demonstrated through the Students for a Democratic Society, through the Yippie movement, through the multiple years of riots, not just one year, but four consecutive years right. of urban riots that eventually pushed the Democratic Party out of communication with the center. Now, it took many years after the beginning of that shift with Richard Nixon's election 
to the presidency for that to continue. It took a decade or more of Democratic hmm. leaders largely ignoring the problem of crime in favor of trying to placate a left that viewed crime as an expression of social injustice. Uh, but by the time of Ronald Reagan, they'd had 16 years to deal with the problem, and the problem had gotten worse rather than gone away. So I think we need to recognize that simply winning one election does not cure all problems and that there are serious desires for radical change afoot. And if the Democratic Party tolerates certain aspects of that, then that sets up the possibility for a resurgent Republican Party to capture the center much in the same way that a populist conservatism of Nixon and Reagan did in the 60s through the 80s. Hmm. You have Trump, though, who is who right now is kind of playing the law and order card, right? I mean, that certainly is a part of this campaign. And I wonder if that so. So it's interesting. What you're saying is that we're the change that you're talking about is not like doesn't involve Trump at all. But Trump is always going to be there. So how does Trump complicate this equation the, the key question is, is Trump always going to be there? He's certainly going to be there for the next 90 days or 76 days, however long it is <laughs> you know, until Election Day. But that's not the battle. You know, the battle is long term. The battle is you know, to analogize it to tennis. Any party that holds the presidency is serving the ball. And the Democrats are trying to break serve and regain the initiative. It looks like they will, but then they have the initiative. Right. And the question is, uh, can they unite this fisperous uh, coalition that is really united on nothing other than not Trump, or will they double fault by mm. doing something with regards to their left that places them out of communion with these very centrist, moderate suburban Republicans that they've been parading out on uh, their convention. Uh, that's an open question, and it has nothing, nothing to do with Donald Trump. You know, so when you talk about populism, um, you know, populism has always been, uh, it's expressed in a number of different ways, but it's largely expressed through our electoral politics. And if you don't succeed in electoral politics, you, you lose your platform. I mean, maybe you find a, a, lo, a much smaller platform elsewhere. But, I mean, that's not where we are right now. We're, if Trump leaves office, he is going to leave with, with still, you know, the number of Twitter followers that he has now. And, and I just, I, I know that I'm getting out into kind of like the zone where we're prognosticating something that we don't understand. But there is this X factor and you wonder... Will the Republican Party, um, the the sort of rank and file, fall into line behind a, a a new order that is not Trump, if Trump is still out there agitating and really giving fuel to sort of the populist, the more the the further right uh, right wing uh, elements of the party? Yeah, I mean certainly that is the Democratic theory of the game that. The Republican Party is consisted uh, mainly of mindless sheep who follow the dear leader and will jump off the cliff with him because he tweets that they ought to do so. You know, any political entity has mindless followers who follow people. You know, the Democratic Progressive Party <laughs> has those people as well. But you know, I'll bring up a couple of data points. One is that polls do occasionally ask, which do you consider yourself more of, a supporter of Donald Trump or a supporter of the Republican Party? Trump usually wins that, but by a margin of five to four. So even now, when Trump is the president, about 45% of Republican voters say they are more Republican than they are Trump. I would expect that that number starts to change once Trump loses, You know, assuming that he does lose, because the fair weather friend will see that Trump will have lost and that will change. So there is going to be an element to which if Trump continues his tweeting and activism, he will have a faction within the Republican Party that will be large. But it's far from clear it'll be a majority faction. And then you'll have the fact that once he's no longer occupying the Republican space, anyone who's ambitious in the Republican Party will try to occupy it which means that you'll have a lot of people offering various versions of Trumpism without Trump. And it would kind of defy belief that 
all of Trump's followers would say, no, we'll only take the original package. There'll presumably be some who will say, yeah, you know, Trump had his time, but I kind of like Mike Pence, more Trump, less tweeting. Or I kind of like Ted Cruz, Trump on immigration, but pre-Republican party on domestic policy. Or I kind of like Marco Rubio, Trump on domestic policy and confronting China, but no sense of racism, because after all, why would he condemn immigrants when he himself is the son of an immigrant? Changes in social attitudes, changes in the global economy, changes in the relative strength of Western versus non-Western powers means we are at an inflection point throughout the West, not just in the United States, with regard to our political alignments. And a few years ago, I wrote a piece for a British publication, uh, Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, entitled, It's Not Left Versus Right, It's Ins Versus Outs. And the way to look at politics today is that there are people who say the times have changed or politics need to change. And that means we need significant change. Those are the people who are feel they are out of power and they're divided into a socialist out or a left wing out that sees one culprit, but are equally populist because they want dramatic change and don't trust an elite and a conservative out, which is, you know, in the United States, basically the AOC Sanders wing and the Trump wing. Uh, and then you have the ends who are center left, centrist or center right, but largely want reform rather than revolution to use Sanders term or draining right. the swamp to use Trump's term. That's not going to go away. And in a bipartisan system, that means that you're going to have both sides of outs trying to capture the respective party that is closest to their viewpoint. In Britain, you saw the left-wing outs capture the Labour Party and the right-wing outs capture the Conservative Party. And that's what the election of Corbyn versus Johnson was. If you were in the center and wanted reform rather than uh, radicalism, uh, you had no responsible choice. And so they people ended up choosing which of the populisms you want. That's the future that is entirely plausible in the United States. What we can't know, we can know that's going on and will go on. What we can't know is who's going to win and what the time scale will be. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the, the campaign right now. So, so one of the major events uh, of the entire campaign happened recently. Kamala Harris was named the VP uh, running mate for Joe Biden. And you, you wrote about, about Harris in the aftermath of that. And you note the historic nature of her run. Uh, you also caution Republicans against really treating her as anything other than a conventional VP pick. And you make a pretty good argument for this. You know, you're, you're essentially telling the Republicans not to take the bait, it feels like, and to turn this into a conversation about race and gender. But it does seem like wishful thinking to imagine that Harris won't be treated differently than, say, Tim Kaine because of her identity alone. Um, she's already been subject to an unfound question about her eligibility that President Trump has done little to dissuade. Um, and all indications are that the campaign will be built on this kind of racial fears and xenophobia. Look, your argument is sound. Why won't the Trump administration listen to you? <laughs> Well, that's been a question I've been asking myself for four years. <laughs> Look, Trump has enormous flaws. You know, I don't think that a lot of what uh, characterizes conservative populism is xenophobic or uh, it caters to racial fears. I think it caters to real concerns. But Trump is somebody who engages in a lot of what in an older day would have been called calumny. You know, he likes to make things personal. He likes to deal in throwing charges against the wall and seeing what sticks. And it seems to be in the na nature of his character. I think he's hurting himself when he does that. Look, there is no reason to think that Kamala Harris is ineligible for the presidency. I mean, she was born in the United States, for crying out loud. Um, and it's been clearly established that we have birth, what's called birthright citizenship is whether your parents are citizens or not. If you're born in the United States, you are a citizen. End of story, period. <laughs> you know, stop dealing with this. Um, I do think that there will be a tendency on the Harris side to try and turn legitimate criticism of her views or her background into a race and gender attack. Oh, you wouldn't say that if I weren't. Well, no. 
you know, her background and her uh, actions and her public record should be subject to exactly the same scrutiny as somebody like Tim Kaine. But the fact is, Trump, for whatever reason, likes to engage in personal assaults, whether the person he's attacking is Joe Scarborough, who, white male, but yet he's sending things out on Twitter, baselessly uh, accusing him of murder of an intern, a conspiracy theory from 15 or 20 years ago when he was a congressman. Uh, The fact is he treats people of all genders and all races equally badly. Uh, in the way he uh, tries to make things personal and crude. And that is something, one of the reasons why he is well behind, because a large number of Americans who may agree with him on policy more simply will not stand for that. Hmm. I mean, certainly a lot of the rhetoric is appealing to the worst in people, right? Like fears of the other, like really like outright racism, xenophobia. I'm not saying that that is all that is there, but that, but that that is sort of the, the top line kind of conversation that's, that's coming from Trump. And then, you know, and then the Republican party, some people like support that. Some people are quiet about it. Some people reject it. But, you know, when Trump leaves office, can those abuses be left behind? What is the long-term impact of having somebody who's who just deals in such racist, xenophobic rhetoric, um, and a party that isn't like outright disavowing him? Well, you know what I would say is, look, um, why is the Democratic Party not rejecting the uh, racist and classist hatred that's being spewed from the progressive left? You know that when somebody talks about white men as a privileged class without distinction between individual background or achievement or talks about the one percent that is every bit as prejudiced and divisive as anything that donald trump says but yet that seems to be okay and it seems to be okay because the people who discern these things largely in the media and the academy actually share those prejudices and like most prejudiced people they cannot examine their own prejudices with the degree of dispassion the data suggests that the republican party largely is not consisting of voters who believe in racist or sexist rhetoric. You take a look at what happened yesterday in Florida, where a black man won a contested primary to win a safe Republican seat, and a woman won the other one. Uh, You take a look at a number of primaries where black and Hispanic or women have won Republican primaries, and and they often ran as Trump supporters. You know, so it, it just is more of an example of the um, preoccupations of the prejudices of the people who largely discern and guide our public conversation and has to say about the Republican Party voter base as it is, which is not to say there are not people on that side uh, who are. Right. But Emily Eakins of Cato Institute has the best analysis of the 2016 Trump general election. And what she found is that only one of the five groups uh, of Trump is largely motivated uh, or has significant motivations uh, on the basis of animus towards African-Americans and or uh, proclaimed white identity. And these uh, people are less of roughly a fifth of his coalition or roughly eight to 10 percent of the American electorate, which is to say it's a minority. Um, right. And that's the Republican Party that I see, which is a Republican Party that the left views in a particular way, but which a fair and dispassionate view of the evidence suggests is not proven. That hmm. you take a look at who you know, Republican voters vote for blacks, they vote for Hispanics, they vote for women. They just vote for Republican versions of that so that it's difficult to say unless you want to say that the entire Republican philosophy of freedom and the American understanding is inherently racist and sexist, which is the argument of the 1619 Project. Um, Unless you buy that, you have to accept that the facts demonstrate that the overwhelming majority of Republicans are not guided by those base instincts. And so consequently, we shouldn't expect that those base instincts will dominate a party once the leader is out of the way. Hmm. Okay, so we're speaking on Wednesday. Uh, we're, we're, two, we're, we're on day three of the Democratic National Convention. Um, we've seen a handful of Republicans come out in support of Joe Biden in the first couple of nights. Um, But do you feel that these figures represent a true movement of Republicans into the centrist Democratic column? Or do Republican voters view these figures as 
turncoats. Well, it can be both, you know, which is to say that within the Republican Party, there was a long term uh, term of derision called rhinos, Republicans in name only. And conservatives said, we need to drive the rhinos out, the people who are moderates. And, and largely the people who have appeared on those stage are people who have been called rhinos in the past, you know, and they were demonstrably more moderate, some more so than others. John Kasich is somebody who got started as a uh, fervent budget cutter in the 1990s and gradually moved to the left over the succeeding 20 years. But in his final iteration as governor of Ohio, he was called a rhino. It is absolutely true that people who, uh, voters, millions of voters, who voted for Romney, who voted for McCain, who voted for George W. Bush, who are between the modern Republican Party on a lot of issues and the Democratic Party, have moved into voting for Democrats. That is true. And these people represent those people very well. Um, at the same time, the bulk of Republicans 80 to 90% of the pre-Trump Republicans were not of that variety. And they do view these people as turncoats. And they viewed these people as turncoats before they turned their coat. And the movement of blue-collar former Democrats into the Republican Party has largely replaced these people in terms of numbers, that Trump did not receive uh, very much uh, lower as a percentage of the national vote than Mitt Romney did. It was roughly a wash in terms of numbers. What made Trump president is that the location of the defectors was spread throughout the country, while the location of the new Republicans was largely concentrated in highly populous and uh, uh, upper Midwest uh, states, you know, which is something I was writing about as early as 2013, or actually 2011. Um, none of this should have been rocket science to anybody uh, because it was hiding in plain view. So the answer to your question is they're both. They represent millions of people and Republicans view them as current codes. The challenge for the Republican Party is that in order to move from Trump's electorally efficient minority to a majority, they need to reattract some of those voters, not all of them, but a substantial number of them, and add among working class Asians and Hispanics and a small number of African-Americans uh, to create a new majority. So they cannot disparage all of these people as turncoats because they need probably about half, you know, a third to half of them to come back if they want to be a consistent national majority party. So um, the future of the Republican Party will depend on them moving beyond Trump to be attractive to the current coalition, plus some of those people who are on display at the Democratic Party. Hmm. All right. Well, this this brings us to um, to another recent column that you wrote, which, again, uh, appreciate you uh, focusing your attention on Washington State. Um, but you took a look at uh, our primary election here, and you. Um, and you found some surprisingly good signs for the Republican Party. Um, can you just explain briefly what you saw in these results and what it tells us about the potential for the general election? So um, the Washington state primary, as all of your Washington listeners know, is a top two all party primary. And uh, for the past decade, uh, the percentages that each combined that each party receives across its variety of candidates added together is a very good predictor of exactly where the general election is going to turn out uh, three months later. So the last four cycles, taking a look at each of your 10 congressional districts, three of which ended up because it's a top two regardless of party system being between two Democrats or two Republicans, the other 37 cases, um, the difference between the Republicans and Democrats from the primary to the Republicans and Democrats in the general was five points or less in 26 of the 37 cases. Um, so what happened this time is that the Republican share in congressional districts was up in every uh, district that did not contain a piece of King or Snohomish County um, uh, by five to nine points and it, uh, from 2018. That in 2018, you saw a drop in the Republican chair. Well, now outside of metropolitan Seattle, the chair is up to 2016 or, uh, uh, or slightly above 2016 levels. 
And even in the Washington 8th District, which Kim Schreier picked up beating Dino Rossi, flipping that seat when Dave Rickert retired, you know, in 2018, Schreier and other Democrats got 50% of the primary vote, Rossi and other Republicans got 47, and Schreier won 52 and a half to 47 and a half, again, following the long-term pattern. This time, Schreier and other Democrats got 47 and a few tenths, and Republicans, Jesse Jensen being the nominee, got 49 and a few tenths. Mm-hmm. So no, so far in this decade, no party that has led in the primary has lost in the general. And if past is prologue, what it suggests is three things. One is that even though Jesse Jensen doesn't have any money in the bank, this is a competitive race in the Washington eight. Two, the out areas, the uh, smaller metro and rural areas are back up to 2016 level. And three, if this is not just a Washington state thing, but this is happening across the country, what it suggests is that places that have large numbers of those voters, like Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, are much likelier to be closer for Trump because the polls are not, for some reason, registering the true level of support for Donald Trump. It's not saying that this is happening, but you take a look at what's happened in Washington, and it's an un, you know what I've just said is basically a recitation of undeniable facts of past patterns and current results. Say, hey, if this is going to happen nationwide, there's the possibility of a surprise brewing that if Trump can get closer nationwide, this surprising level of support outside of the metropolitan area could be enough to bring him over the top. Hmm. I'm curious about what you think of the of the idea that a Trump reelection is a threat to American democracy. It's scaremongering that has no basis in fact other than the fever dreams of the left. When I hear somebody say he's a threat to American democracy, you know, the cornerstones of democracy are set out in the First Amendment. That if you have freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of action, and freedom of assembly, and freedom to write, and then you have free elections, you have democracy. There's nothing that Trump is doing that threatens any of those freedoms. If there were, You'd be seeing that, you know, you would be seeing a Donald Trump who is doing something serious to constrain and constrict the political space of his opponents, as opposed to lobbying names at them. And he's not. There is nothing that Donald Trump is doing that is a threat to the core elements of, of democratic behavior. He is um, a bully, a jerk. We were in private, non-recorded conversation. I would use more earthy language to describe his character. Appreciate that. People can fill that in. And that's bad. That's bad for American speech. We shouldn't have somebody who is honored who engages in that sort of behavior. But that is not a threat to the core elements of democracy. We have the rule of law. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of the press. We have freedom to assemble. We have freedom to vote. All of these things are the core elements of democracy, and Donald Trump is doing zippo nada to interfere with them. So I want to just focus for a second on this issue of the Postal Service, which you also have recently written about. People are up in arms about some changes to the Postal Service, which are you know removing mailboxes, taking sorting machines offline, which you write that the Postal Service has been kind of in need of a restructure because it is losing a lot of money. I, I don't know if I, I quite agree with the with critiquing the Postal Service as a business, but I think that that's just sort of maybe how we <laughs> differ in our views of what the Postal Service is. But I do think that it certainly is a valid critique on like, like there were things happening before, there are things happening now, they have sped up. Where I found a little bit of trouble with it, though, is that Trump has said things that would make you believe that the reason these changes are happening are in order to suppress the vote. And so is it unreasonable for people to think that? You know, Trump has unreasonable fears about mail-in balloting. I've written about that. I've criticized him about that, that I, while I believe that mail-in balloting has the potential for fraud that is less present in in person balloting. We have never seen a massive 
exploitation of those possibilities to justify the fear mongering that Trump is engaged in. Right. So to the extent that Trump is saying that and then says things about the Postal Service, I can understand why people would jump to that conclusion. But we've had a number of elections during this period when these changes were being done. Millions of votes have been cast by mail without a problem. The problems that have erupted have usually been when uh, even a cursory examination, like in Manhattan, you know, it's just no way a Postal Service can react when the New York uh, city board of elections is sending out absentee ballots on Monday for an election that's due on Tuesday. That's not a postal problem. That's a New York City problem. Had nothing mm -hmm. to do with Donald Trump, nothing to do with funding, nothing to do with Republicans. Hmm. Okay, Henry, I'm, uh, we've come to the end. I've got one more question for you. Uh, and this is a question that I've been asking uh, everybody that I interview um, the last couple months or so. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, Things are not looking good for, for President Trump. But um, what happens if Trump wins? Uh, and specifically, what, what I'd like to hear is what happens to the Republican Party if Trump wins? Well, if Trump wins, then it will be obviously uh, some sort of a vindication for the Trumpian approach to politics, that uh, his, it will be more difficult for people within the Republican Party to argue that Trumpian tone and tactics are not the right way to go forward. Um, and it emboldens President Trump to uh, act more, if anything, aggressively. You know, we know that presidents who win a second term tend to overplay their hand in that second term. You know, it was certainly the case with George W. Bush, who took a 51 to 48 victory as a mandate to reform Social Security when he had never run on it. I mean, that's absurd. On the face of it, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. um, but, so I would expect in the short term more Trumpism from Trump and from the Republican Party. Um, but, you know, the fundamental uh, underlying fact is that parties represent voters' interests. Uh, people in focus on individuals who occupy leadership positions. But in our system, they only occupy those positions over the long term if they adequately represent the constellation of views that a large number of people hold. So uh, the fact is that the Republican Party is largely now a coalition of people who combine um, uh, mildly nationalistic views with with uh, some degree of religiosity, extreme, you know, going from the extreme to the mild, but it's largely a religious Christian party, uh, along with a devotion to American principles and a view that the American founding was good and noble and that the American free market system is a good thing. So regardless of Trump's victory, those views are going to remain. Uh, and the question of Trump's effect will in part depend on how an emboldened Trump pushes. If he pushes the boundaries of those views, um, one would expect a bit of a voter pushback, much in the way that when George W. Bush was pushing the boundaries of Republican views in 2005, you know, by the end of the time, he was one of the most, he left office with the lowest presidential approval ratings in decades. Um, so you can only push boundaries so far in a democratic system. And if Trump is reelected, he may find that to his detriment. All right. That's Henry Olson. You can read his continuing commentary on the election at the Washington Post. Henry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Hello, I'm Knut Berger, editor-at-large and resident historian at Crosscut. My job here is to cover the intersection of history and politics in the Pacific Northwest. And right now we're at a moment of historic convergence. Northwest history is full of social tumult, idealism, and exclusion. It's rich with experience and warnings. The recent protests for social justice have given me the chance to search our complicated heritage for something relevant to the moment. I found it in the statues and place names that speak to the region's long history of racism. History tells us something about our current pandemic as well. After the first case of COVID-19 was reported in Washington state, I looked back to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. I started researching for lessons in that experience 100 years ago. Did people follow the science back then? Did they refuse to wear masks? 
How did the epidemic change the Pacific Northwest? What was the aftermath? These are the stories I get to work on at CrossCut, trying to understand the present through the lens of history, trying to look ahead with lessons learned or unlearned. I couldn't do this work without CrossCut, and CrossCut can't do its job without your support. We count on our readers, listeners, and viewers to help us dig into our region to keep you informed and engaged in these historic times. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. And thank you for your consideration. Now, back to the show. I've got David Croman here now. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that David has been tracking the city's response to the recent protests against racism and policing. The last we spoke with David, city council members were indicating that there were major changes coming to the city's approach to public safety, the big one being an effort to defund the police by up to 50%. Last week, there was some real movement in City Hall and then a major shakeup when Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best announced her resignation. She'll be leaving her post on September 2nd. David, before we get to Chief Best's resignation, can you tell me what exactly the city council has committed to in terms of defunding the police? Yeah, so last week they voted to basically cut the salaries of 100 police officers from the Seattle Police Department. That doesn't necessarily mean that 100 police officers are going to get laid off, but it would you reduce the overall size of the police department by that many, you know, either through layoffs or just attrition, so not hiring new officers. And this decision was part of this sort of bigger budget conversation that was going on in Seattle City Council because of the mm -hmm. COVID-19 shortfalls. But, you know, after several weeks and even months of talk about action, this was at once sort of a fairly dramatic thing to do because it's the first time in recent memory that Seattle police officers are probably going to have to be laid off while at the same time it's it's you know definitely not 50% of the Seattle police department's budget which is what activists had called for so it's kind of um you know too dramatic in the eyes of some and not dramatic enough in the eyes of others so what do we know about the relationship between those decisions and Carmen Best's resignation so at least according to Carmen Best they are closely tied together one thing that the Seattle City Council did at the last minute that a lot of people point to is they decided to to cut the salaries of the Seattle Police Department's executive team, including Harmon Best. Mm. And what was interesting about that is Councilmember Shama Sawant has been for years, for as long as I've been covering City Hall, introduced proposals like this, uh, not just for the Seattle Police Department, but basically all executives across the city to cut their salaries. And it's never gone anywhere. It's always lost um, overwhelmingly. And then yet when she introduces it this time, I think because of the momentum of the moment and they were sort of moving towards these cuts, to my surprise, one support from six other hmm. from five other council members. It was going to save around $350,000, wasn't a huge amount of money, but it became this sort of really big symbolic thing of, you know, respect and disrespect. And I think what that really did was to turn this broader conversation around what public safety really is and kind of gave the impression that it was a personal thing. And, you know, mm. people deny that and um, city, other city council members say it definitely wasn't personal. But by making this kind of last minute decision to, you know, really not save that much money and it's not really a systemic change um, to cut their salaries, kind of took what was already a contentious issue and, and sort of blew it up. So Carmen Best says it, it wasn't about the money, why she's leaving, that really it was about she doesn't want to be the one to lay off police officers. But she also said that she does believe that some of the city council's actions were personal, and it's hard to kind of separate out their decision to cut her salary from her allegations that the Seattle City Council were targeting her personally. Hmm. So you also wrote this week that Chief Best struggled with the politics of her job and that and that that played a role here as well. What did you mean by that, by her struggling with the politics of her job? Carmen Best has been in the Seattle Police Department for 28 years. She is very much of the Seattle Police Department. She is, you know, she she's a cop. She uh, 
likes being a cop. She likes, she loves the department. She talks about it a lot. Mm. Um, but in becoming the police chief, it's, it's sort of in some ways one of the more political jobs in the whole city because you are working at the pleasure of the mayor, who is, of course, accountable to the voters, but you're also in charge of the rank and file police. So you're sort of in, be- and then you've got the Seattle City Council too. So you're in between all these things and it takes a lot of skill to kind of juggle that. And and it's, I'm not coming up with this on my own. I mean, Carmen Vest often would say in press conferences, I'm, I'm not political. And, and then she tries to avoid politics and tries to just kind of do her job quietly as the police chief. But, um, you know, especially towards the end, it was inevitable that this would become political because she is standing up there with the mayor talking explicitly about what a bad idea it is for the Seattle City Council to do these, to, to make these decisions. And so, you know, even even at the end, she was saying that she likes the work of policing, and that she loves the police department, but didn't really understand what the Seattle City Council's long-term plan was, and basically was saying she found the whole thing too unpredictable. And so her reasons for leaving were less about her faith in the institution of law enforcement and more about her faith or lack of faith in City Hall. Hmm. So we saw a lot of reactions to this announcement. And I'm curious, I, I want to walk you through a, a few different groups and have you tell me sort of w- what their individual reactions were. Uh, first, how did the city council respond to this resignation? Did it come as a surprise to them? Um, I think it did. Yeah. I think most people were surprised by this decision. And um, I think that there was a there was a realization that this didn't look very good for them because polling has showed that Carmen Best is significantly more popular than the Seattle City Council. And, you know, kind of, I think, given the choice between her and some sort of unknown police chief, they would prefer to have worked with her. I mean, remember when early on, Carmen Best was not among the finalists to get this job. And when that happened, there was a huge amount of outcry, including from some members of the Seattle City Council who basically said, you know, this is an atrocity. She's got all these great connections to the community. So some of the same right. people who were voting to cut her salary had also advocated for her hiring in the first place. Um, mm. I think it took by, them by surprise. And, you know, we saw Nash, this become a national story. And the narrative that took hold is a really bad one for the Seattle City Council, which is that their decisions caused the first black woman to lead the Seattle Police Department to leave. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- there's probably something reductionist a little bit about that narrative, but it is the narrative that took hold. And so, you know, we, we pretty quickly saw Alex Peterson and Andrew Lewis and Deborah Juarez, who are the three council members who voted against cutting her salary, immediately start to distance themselves from the rest of the Seattle City Council. And then mm. the the other, the council members who did vote to cut her salary, with the exception of Shama Sawant, very quickly pivoted to this is not a personal thing. This is not about an individual. This is about this system, which I think was an acknowledgement that the individual who had just left was actually fairly popular. Um, the only person who did go really hard after Carmen Best in the end was Shama Sawant, um, which right. is, is not, not all that surprising. Hmm. So like you said, um, Carmen Best was the first black woman to lead the department. And and that really kind of complicated her role in, in, in recent events. And so her career started with vocal support from some members of the city council, um, also some members of the city's black community. And so y- you and uh, our colleague Lily Fowler have done some reporting on how members of that community have responded to her resignation. What What were they saying? Yeah, so I think what we see, you know, I I compare the reactions in some ways to political divides that you see in some of the presidential races that, you know, a candidate like Bernie Sanders has a ton of support from young um, people of color, young black people. And Joe Biden has overwhelming support from, you know, sort of older generations of black people. And I I think there are similar dynamics happening here with Carmen Best, where um, especially, you know, among the black clergy and people who have been in the black community here for a really long time and knew Carmen Best before she was chief and respected her um, and pushed for her to get the job in the first place were pretty heartbroken to see her leave like this. One person that we talked to said, you know, compared it to a death. 
So it's pretty dramatic. You know, I think among people in the younger generation who are maybe a little more apt to be out on the streets protesting and um, were really upset with the police department's use of tear gas and some of the sort of information that Carmen Best put out there and then later walked back because it wasn't correct, um, you know, are, are less sympathetic to her departure. But I think at the same time, we did see a kind of acknowledgement of the symbolism of her leaving, which similar to the Seattle City Council, people were talking about, look, this was these protests were never about an individual. They were always about the system. Um, we, you didn't see a lot of people declaring victory or anything like that, that she was leaving because there aren't really any illusions that just a new police chief is going to make a, a big difference in how the Seattle Police Department operates. So hmm. um, right. people, the, you know, the younger folks weren't necessarily mourning her departure, but they, I, I would say that they weren't calling it a victory either. So a new chief or an interim chief has been named. Um, what happens now? Yeah, so Adrian Diaz, who was deputy chief, now takes over the role of interim chief. I doubt we're going to see any sort of dramatic change from him because he's an interim chief. It's um, mm-hmm. He was Carmen Best's right-hand man. He was loyal to her. He's going to have a sort of similar way of looking at the department. And, you know, we already heard him when he was talking about moving forward, sort of use some of the same language that Carmen Best was. What's interesting, though, is the mayor has decided she is not going to launch a search for a new police chief right away, um, which is pretty unusual. And the reason she's she's not doing that, she says, is because she doesn't know. Well, A, she doesn't know what the future holds for the department. She's not sure what this next round of budget negotiations are going to how they're going to end up. And B, she, she said she doesn't think that she could get the kind of candidate that she wants right now because it's sort of a tough environment for somebody to want to come into. And so I would say that the department as a whole is kind of in this holding pattern where you kind of you have these two two competing approaches to, quote, you know, reimagining the police department. There's the city councils, which is um, a, a sort of more numbers driven. Um, we're going to cut X number of dollars from the police department and and move that money around. And that's how we're going to rebuild the department versus the Jenny Durkin approach, which is let's let's build alternatives first and not really think about this in terms of the size of the police department. And I think um, leadership, how leadership moves forward and who, in fact, is in charge of the department uh, will, will depend on how that really shakes out. All right, David, thanks so much. You can read David's reporting on Carmen Best's resignation and policing and City Hall at crosscut.com. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hope to have you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to David and to Henry Olson for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. I'll be back next week with another episode.